Hello, and welcome to the Learn It podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim is to introduce you to changemakers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help or not. We're looking at reopening schools in the wake of COVID and how learning is changing. We want to know how to close equity gaps and prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, Jenny Anderson. Head over to learnit.world to join the community or to get in touch. Our guest this week is Shai Reshef, founder of University of the People, a nonprofit tuition-free online university. Reshef founded University of the People, what he calls the education revolution, in 2009 after 25 years of working in for-profit education. It offers accredited undergraduate American degrees in computer science, community and public health, and business administration, as well as an MBA and a master's in education. In 2018, 12,000 students were enrolled. Today, it is over 53,000. Its budget is a mere $13 million. For its large student body and innovative model, University of the People is relatively unknown, which is why we were intrigued to learn more about it. While it's tuition-free, students do pay for their assessments. So an associate's degree costs $2,460 and a bachelor's degree, $4,860. There are also scholarships for those who can't pay. University of the People keeps costs down by having professors donate their time, students use open educational resources, and keeping it all online. Peer-to-peer learning is a key component and students grade some of each other's work, supervised by the professor. Students must pass two foundational courses to be admitted, about 50% make it, and then classes are taught by professors, including some from elite universities such as New York University and the University of Edinburgh. Every student must participate in every class and comment on one another's contributions. If someone wants to be just a programmer, he can go to boot camp and become a programmer. He doesn't need to go to a university. I think that university should bring much more. We believe that uh, we should teach people critical thinking. We want to have well-rounded individuals. We want them to, to experience the world and have a broader knowledge. University of the People is different from, say, the Open University in the UK because it's significantly cheaper. It also has a liberal arts foundation, as well as a very specific pedagogy. Last September, Reshef founded the first Arabic language online degree program after seeing students, in particular refugees, flocking to its program, but being limited by their lack of English. We get into all of this. Shai, it is such a pleasure to have you with us. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well, and it's a pleasure to be here as well. So let me start with the numbers. I spoke with your provost, David Cohen, last May, and you had about 21,000 students, and you now have more than 53,000. Talk me through how COVID has impacted the University of the People. We are growing quite fast for the last few years, but COVID made a major change because Many more students jumping online, some of them because they are uh, quarantined and they feel like that's the best time to study. Some of them come to us because their school are being closed and they come to us. But I think that the majority, to our knowledge, are people who lost their job and they feel that they need to either complete their education or switch their career path in order to get a better job. What have been the challenges and opportunities presented by this extremely fast growth? Since we are always growing, we're always trying to anticipate how we deal with the next stage of growth. 
Always the challenge is to have enough instructors. And for every 20 students, we have an instructor. Now we have a pool of 17,000 volunteers who are mainly professors who want to teach with us. But again, training them is a challenge. We have program advisors for every student to start with us. We have a program advisor actually with the students from the day they start until they graduate. Again, we need to ramp up the number of program advisors. So, you know, managing growth is always a challenge. Saying that, uh, we are used to the growth and we feel that uh, for us it was relatively easier than other institutions because we are online university and the technology can accommodate probably any number of students. There are quite a few big name online universities. What would you say the main difference is with University of the People? I guess that the main difference is not only that we are nonprofit, we are tuition-free online university, which means that anyone with any high school diploma and proficiency in English can be accepted and study with us tuition-free, which is not free, but it's a nominal price of $120 per each end of course exam. So a full BA will cost the students 4,800 US dollars and those who cannot make it get scholarships. So we don't send away any student for financial reasons and that makes it a big difference to many others. I mean, I admire the British Open University, but it's by no means free. I would say another difference is that our pedagogy is that when students study, it's a group of 20 students in a virtual class with an instructor. For every 20 students, we have an instructor. The pedagogy is peer-to-peer learning where they teach and learn from each other while it is online. It's very interactive, very demanding. And every time you take a class, you meet 20 students from 20 different countries. So it's a global program. And that class of 20 stays together for the 10 weeks and with that one professor. And then that changes. So every 10 weeks, we start a new term. We have five terms a year. And every time you take a class, you study with the same students for the 10 weeks. However, the second term, we try to mix you with 20 new students from 20 new countries to give you the opportunity to learn other cultures, get new friends from around the world. So the experience of studying from, with students from 200 countries, we believe that it's a main assets that the students benefit from. As you said, it's 10 weeks is a term. Every week starts on Thursday, ends on Wednesday to ensure that from every country and every part of the world, the weekend is in the middle of our week. So either you like to study in the weekend or you don't like to study in the weekend, it's still in the middle. And when you go into the class, you find the lecture notes of the week, the reading assignment, the homework assignment, and the discussion question. And the discussion question is the core of our pedagogy. So after students read everything that you need to read, you see the discussion question and you put your own original contribution to the class discussion. The second student, let's say that she's coming from a different country and she comes two hours later, she reads everything, but she at that point see what you, the first student, wrote in the wall, and she comment on it. And the third student, when he joined, he see what the two other students wrote, and so on and so on. Every student, when they log on into the class, they see what every student say, and then they start commenting on each other. And every student every week must have at least one original contribution to the class discussion, at least three times to comment on what other students say. So the entire week, the discussion between the students develops. 
under the supervision of the instructor who is there every day, read whatever the students wrote, correct mistakes, answer questions, or redirect the discussion if it went to the wrong direction. By the end of the week, they take a quiz to see that they master the material. They hand in their homework, which is assessed randomly and anonymously by three of their peers. They get grades and they go to the next week. The idea is that the students learn by not only learning the material, but also by commenting on each other. And the ability to be able to grade other people's work not only means that you need to master the material, but you also should be capable of doing it right because they learn a lot by assessing other students. I can imagine if I came in and I had three of my peers who I didn't particularly rate or maybe didn't know grading me, I would be upset. So how do you convince them that this is A, effective and B, fair? You're right. Quite a few of them at the beginning are upset. Uh, so part of the answer is, as I said, wait, just, just get used to it and you see that you like it most. Second, uh, what we do uh, at the beginning, we lower the importance of the evaluation at the first courses. So we show the students that, well, even if they don't like the grades, they are not that important for the overall grade until they're getting used to it. Also, students are always allowed to uh, appeal the grade and they can go to the instructor and say, wait a second, you know, I didn't get a fair grade and, and the instructors are capable of uh, changing the grade if he feels right. So, you know, there is a process of learning there. Also, students cannot just give a grade. There are rubrics, how to give the grades, and you have to stick with the rubrics. You have to justify the grade that you give. You have to say why you give this grade. So it's not just a random grading system. It's a very elaborate one. And we teach the students how to do it and it works. <laughs> you do have a sort of pre-required online learning class, right? So everybody who comes in has to sort of study the method of how University of the People works so that they're prepared for this. Is that right? Definitely. Every student must pass two courses before they're being admitted. So one course is online strategies with actually, as you said, we teach them our pedagogy, we teach them how it works, what they are expected to do, what is plagiarism, what to do and what not to do, what is peer-to-peer -peer learning, etc. The second course is a course of their choice. We only offer business administration, computer science, health science and education, and you need to pass these two courses in order to be admitted. And this is a win-win situation because for you, the student, it's the best way to see who we are. As you said, peer-to-peer, -peer, you don't like it, it's okay, but that's how we teach and you need to get used to us. We teach you how to do it. We take it easy. We make it easy to absorb and you have a full term to learn how to make it happen. But a lot of students, you know, either don't like it or expect something different. A lot of students think that online is easy. First of all, we are tuition-free. So people feel, wow, I'll send my application and I'll get the degree by mail. Well, it's not quite like this. Second, we tell them every course that you take, expect 15 to 20 hours of work a week. You know, it's the human nature that people say, well, that's for others. I can make it in one hour. Well, one hour goes by and you are not with us anymore because you can't make it in an hour. So it's like the two courses is for you to learn what we are, but also for us, because if you, since we open the gates to everyone and we let everyone comes in, 
there are quite a few students who don't meet our standards. So if you don't pass these two courses, you can't be admitted as a degree-seeking student. We give you another chance. But if you don't pass, you are not. If you pass, you get credit for these courses and you are already in your third course toward a degree. What is your retention rate once they get past those two courses? And how have you seen that evolve over the, you were founded in 2009, accredited in 2014. Let's say from 2014, how have you seen that retention rate change? In 2013, I think, we introduced a course in English that will help the students a little bit with their English and be a tool to evaluate their proficiency. And that was a screening method by itself, because again, a lot of students could not make the English, and if they start with us without proper English, they simply cannot make it. Then we still realized that if we said only English and high school diploma, we got a lot of students that were not prepared and they couldn't make it. In 2017, we introduced the new path for admission with the two courses that uh, we just uh, talked about before, and this changed dramatically our retention. Right now, um, close to about 80% of, of the students who are being admitted continue to the second year, and this is way more than uh, the average, the equivalent in the U.S. of other universities. We realize that a lot of students are getting lost along the way. They get an email from the provost. What the hell is a provost? I'm on probation. Why am I on probation? What does it mean? You know, there are a lot of, of academic kind of jargon that students are not used to. And they don't know, can I take a break? I can't I can't log on what, to the internet. What should I do? How should I register for the next term, et cetera, et cetera? And they are like kind of, and not only that they don't know the answer, they don't know who to ask. We decided that every student will have a so-called a big brother in the university, a program advisor that will be their person from the day they start until they graduate, they will know them personally. They will help them with any question they have. So anytime any student send any email to the university, it doesn't matter to which department, it first goes to their program advisors. They usually know the answer. If they know the answer, the answer. If not, they are the one to know whom to, whom to ask. Um, we also see them as a very uh, important tool for retention. So they identify students at risk. They identify when students have difficulties and they give them advice. And the advice is not, is not academic. But if you see that you're getting to week five, and week five is the last time when you can withdraw without penalty, so-called, from a course, and they, the advisors see that uh, you're struggling in the two courses that you take, uh, they are the one to come and say, why, why don't you consider dropping out, withdrawing for one of the courses, stay with one and pass it rather than failing to the two. So they're giving this advice. They're also uh, encouraging students where if they don't show up enough in the class to encourage them to come. So this is extremely important tool for us. We are very proud of it as well. And, and I think that it's not very common. How many volunteers do you have and how will you scale a business that is reliant on volunteers? First of all, we have 1,000 active volunteers. But beyond the number of volunteers that we have, we are using more and more technology. And the more technology we use, it means that the role of the instructor would be easier, which means that we will need less of their time in the class. And I'll give one example. 50,000 students, I assume that every week we have 1,000, and probably it's much more. 
many more students come and ask their instructors, can I submit my homework late? Well, two things. First of all, I'm not sure that the instructors know the answer, but we can use robots. And the robots, not only that we sure that they know the answer, they can answer in, in a second the question. So using technology can save us quite a lot of the instructor's time. And if we reduce the amount of time that they spend, we can use them more. Second, we are paying our instructors honorarium. And honorarium is basically a, a very small amount. Basically, it's a gratitude for the great work that they're doing. But when you go outside of the U.S., you can find amazing academics with a fraction of the price. And let's say that 10% of our instructors will come from India. The honorarium that we pay in India is pretty much a salary in India. Third, and this is probably the most important, we have a, a sustainable financial model. Right now, with 50,000 students, our budget is $13 million. And not only that we are sustainable, we have surplus. Well, the more we grow, the more surplus we will have. This surplus can be used to pay the instructors more. So in the long run, I believe that we will be able to pay the instructors market value salary as much as they will get elsewhere. So I feel that while we are learning and taking measures and building it in the long run, it will not be a challenge for us. University of the People is a liberal arts degree. If you look at your degrees, you've got computer science, you've got community and public health, but you're weaving in a liberal arts component. What's the thinking there? Our students, you know, many of them uh, come from hardship, many of them are working adults, many of them did not have any other opportunity, but all of them, with hardly any exception, come to us in order to have a better future. And in order to have a better future, we decided to offer the only degrees that will give them a better chance to find a job. And that's why we chose the degrees that, that you mentioned. But saying that, we believe that education is more than a profession. If someone wants to be just a programmer, he can go to boot camp and become a programmer. He doesn't need to go to a university. I think that university should bring much more. We believe that uh, we should teach people critical thinking. We want to have well-rounded individuals. We want them to, to experience the world and have a broader knowledge. We think that these people should be more than a professional because if you only study vocational, you might find a great job, but if you're a programmer, what happens where your program is obsolete? Do you have the tools to study either a new software or a new career or open a new or change your career? And I believe that university gives you the tools for that beyond the, the very specific knowledge that we teach you in regard to your occupation. We broaden your mind and make you capable to make this adjustment in the future. In September, you founded an Arabic language online university. Why? You know, for years, we were, were saying that English is the language of the world. And if you want uh, to prepare people for the 21st century job market, they should speak English. While this is obviously true, along the years, we discovered something else. And the discovery was that the fact that someone doesn't speak English is not a good enough excuse for not let them have higher education. Following the Arab Spring and the war in Syria, we got quite a few grants for uh, Arabs and especially Syrian refugees to study with us. 
and it came from foundations and the German government and individuals. And we start offering scholarship to Syrian refugees. And what we realized is that uh, while the number of refugees who study with us is growing dramatically, and we have now over 5,000 refugees studying with us, and that we have over 8,000 Arab-speaking students studying with us in English, we had 125,000 Syrian refugees who applied but couldn't make it because of the language. And we felt like this is kind of like doesn't make any sense because there are 200,000 Syrians who were left outside of higher education because of the war, and they don't have any option. And universities don't take them. You know, and if university take one or two students, they are very proud that they have one or two refugees, but the numbers are huge. I mean, thinking about us alone having 125,000 uh, applicants. So we decided that we want to offer your people in Arabic as well. So what we did, we got grants and we started by offering a business administration in Arabic. We replicate our degree into Arabic with the local adjustments. And starting in September, we offer business administration in, in Arabic. And what we also offer is that while they study in Arabic, in the first two years, we offer them English as a second language. This is a new program that we develop, ELL, and it enables our Arab-speaking students to master the English language while they study in Arabic. And the idea is that after two years, they will switch into English and be part of our global community. We started with 500 students the first term. The second term, we already have uh, 1,500 students. It's all done by, obviously, our professors. Is there an accreditation affiliation somewhere in the Arab world? Like you are accredited to offer American degrees. Are you accredited to offer degrees or is this just a program and then the English language piece helps gets them to the University of the People, which could eventually get them a degree? Your People is a fully American accredited, accredited in the U.S. And as such, we had to take our Arabic into our accreditation agency before offering it. And it's fully accredited as well. So it's accredited in the U.S., both the English and the Arabic. It's American accredited degree as well. What are your projections for how this grows versus the English language program? I project to have 5,000 students by the end of the first year. Probably it will double itself the second year as well. So we'll have 10 students then beyond that. I don't know. You worked in the for-profit sector for 25 years before you founded University of the People. What were the most effective things you were able to take from the for-profit world into the not-for-profit world to build this? I think that the main thing that I took is that university is a business. Now, it's, you know, it's kind of like politically incorrect to say that, but it is. And we behave as a business, meaning you have business plan every year. You have your KPIs. You have your targets. You have how much you have to spend. What do you have to get out of it? And looking at every department as a unit. I think that's the main take, and that's why I think that we are able to run a university of 50,000 students with a budget of $13 million. Now, we know our budget limits because we are tuition-free, so we plan our, our expenses accordingly. So I think that behaving by knowing exactly 
uh, what you want to give the students, what is important and what is not important, what is essence and what is not essence. You know, we obviously, well, we are online, but we have very little extracurricular activities to our students. Now, this is important in a sense for students, but we can't afford it. And the question is, if you want tuition free, what you can give and what you cannot give. And you make your choices because we can do much more for our students, but then we need to charge them much more. So I think that the main thing that I brought with me is a kind of looking in business eyes of how to run a university, uh, what positions you need, what position you don't need. Well, you know, we are, we are spread from all over the world. I mean, we are, we are operating from all over the world. So all of our academics are in the U.S., but our IT is being developed in the West Bank, Palestine. Uh, we have support group in India. We have people who work from Europe and people who work from, uh, from Africa. And we get a great quality at a fraction of a price. And we do that because that's how to make business successful. Uh, we use technology and we lean heavily on technology simply because it gives great service at a cheaper price. So, you know, we're looking differently at, at the business. And that's all my experience from uh, the for-profit world. On the other hand, I think that uh, I do realize the importance of accreditation. I do realize the importance of... Uh, Look, when you look at our board and at our president, the people who lead the university, you will see people who came from an online university, people who came from the business world, but as well, people like David Cohen that uh, you mentioned who come from great university. And if you look at our president's council, it's presidents of amazing university, a present and past presidents and vice chancellors of Oxford and Berkeley and Columbia and McGill. And they bring us the importance of traditional universities and their culture and their way of behavior. And we are creating a hybrid between the two. And I think that that's a part of our secret because we bring the quality of traditional universities with the operation of uh, the for-profit world. There is often a view that something that is free is lesser quality, or if it's non-selective, it's lesser quality than, say, a for-profit option. Do you think that that's true? Whether the perception is there, maybe, but uh, whether it's true, obviously it's not, it's not true, definitely not in our case. I mean, we open the gates to those who cannot afford higher education. Look at, at Syrian refugees. Should I charge $10,000 and exclude them from the university just in order to say, I'm prestigious, I'm exclusive, and, and therefore you cannot get in. So I think that, you know, you look who is behind, who is behind the university. And I mentioned the president of great universities. We are partners with NYU with uh, Berkeley, uh, with uh, Edinburgh, and with uh, Long Island University. Our students are able to transfer to those universities. They wouldn't have taken our students if the quality was not there. And they check our, our quality before signing an agreement with us. Uh, our first students went to Berkeley after two years with us. She studied associate degree with us, then moved to Berkeley, uh, just graduated with straight A, and now she has been accepted to MIT for graduate studies. So obviously the quality is there. What have been the biggest challenges to growing university of the people? I think that we just talked about the biggest challenge. People don't know that we are there. 
UNESCO stated that there are 100 million students who in, who in 2025, in uh, four years from now, will not have seats in the existing universities. And these 100 million people are people who deserve higher education, and higher education will not only change their life, it will change the life of their families, their communities, their countries, and the world. But they need to know that the opportunity is there. And we offer them an opportunity to study tuition-free. And they said, right now, those who cannot even afford our minimum fees, we give them scholarships. So basically, the opportunity is there, but they should know about it. And they don't know about it. Simply because, you know, we don't have a budget to spread the word to everyone. And... It takes time. So we are, you know, we're doubling this year, which means that the world is much more out than it used to be. But we still, there is a long way to go. How much do you expect COVID and this global pandemic will fundamentally change higher education? It will no doubt change higher education. And it will change higher education from many perspectives. First of all, people learn that online is an option. I mean, whether you liked it or not, you study online if you are a university student right now. And while some don't like it because it is not being done properly, for many, it's a great tool. And it's a great tool if you want the flexibility. You know, why would you wake up at 8 o'clock in the morning if you like to wake up later, if you can wake up at noon and watch the class uh, on TV? Why do you want to go to a professor and uh, watch him live when you can uh, sit at home And if you are multitasking, do other things when you do it, but also stop and get and get something to drink. If the professor speaks too slow, you can run it faster. If if you don't understand something and you watch a video, you can stop and rewind and listen to it again. So, So online is a lot of advantages that people just realize. So this is the first thing. The second thing is that universities are in trouble. Because of the COVID, the world is getting into recession. A lot of people will not be able to afford higher education. But universities, in order to accommodate them, need to cut the prices. Well, our price structure makes it really hard for them to cut prices. But here you have less students who are able to study. And, you know, in the U.S., there are 4% less students who attend higher education this year alone. Students who come from abroad, which are the cash cow of most universities, decline by 25%. And these are the people who pay full tuition. Add to that, budget cut by states. State gets into recession as well. The first place to cut is always higher education. So how universities will cut? The overwhelming percentage of universities will not be able to cut their budget by 10%. So what do they do? They need to change their structure. But changing structure is hard for them. So I think that higher education is facing a major challenge. And the only way for them to deal with it is change their structure, which is really hard, really painful, but they have to do it in order to survive for the future. All right, we are at the end. So I'm going to do something super quickly with you. What is your favorite book about learning? I have to admit that in the last five, six years, I'm working 16 hours a day. And as such... I don't have a lot of time for reading. But saying that, I think that uh, my favorite book in learning is John Sexton, NYU former president's book called Standing for Reason, the University in a Dogmatic Age. What is your favorite book not about learning? 
By far, my favorite book in the last few years is A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Noah Harari. And my favorite one, what are you binge watching? I don't know how many years I haven't watched TV, but uh, recently I did watch The Queen's Gambit, which I think is is amazing. So that's my favorite. <laughs> my favorite and the only one that I watched. Shai, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for the great interview and thank you for inviting me. As Reshef says in this podcast, UNESCO estimates that by 2025, there will be 100 million students who want to go to university but cannot. University of the People is one of what will be a growing number of solutions to this problem. I was struck by how the university plans to address its reliance on volunteers, more revenue, which means more salaries or honorariums, use of professors in regions like India where salaries are lower, and robots. It's not often that you find someone excitedly talking about how AI will replace humans. But undoubtedly, that will have to be part of the solution to getting to 100 million more seats. I was also struck by the one-two punch of shrinking budgets and fewer students and the pressure that will put on traditional universities. Finally, the figure that leapt out at me from this conversation was 125,000. That's the number of Syrian refugees who wanted to sign up for University of the People but couldn't because they didn't have the English language skills. That's why Reshef and his donors launched its Arabic language online program and caused him to rethink his premise that to be well prepared for the 21st century, you need an English language degree. That's an amazing pivot or iteration for a now 10 year startup. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and see you next week. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.